is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 153 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm joined once again by returning guest and one of my all-time writing BFFs, Helen Scheura, and we are going to talk all about her new book, How to Write a Successful Series. But first to last week's question, which was, what has surprised you recently? So, Edwin Downward said, it's not really a new thing, but I've been recently surprised once again how much mindset figures into having a good day. Ah. I can't tell you how much I agree with you. <laughs> the exact, uh, the same exact situation, but approached from a new, more positive angle can make a world of difference. M- my dad talks about uh, Thoth, who was a uh, um, uh, mythological, I can't think of the words. I, it is early in the morning and I have not had enough coffee. <laughs> anyway, uh, a, a, a character mentioned from history. And I think the quote is like universe's mind. But essentially what the quote means is that mind creates reality and therefore mindset is everything. That is pretty much the only thing that we can control. And yet it's the hardest thing to control. <laughs> but anyway, I completely agree is my point. Wordarella said I was surprised by everything included in Canva Pro. Honestly, I've used a free version since they first opened, but was afraid of the additional cost with my shoestring budget. Three months ago, I took the plunge and now uh, I'm taking advantage of their content calendar uh, to also avoid having to purchase a separate tool to post to Pinterest, Instagram and TikTok life saver. Yeah, I bloody love Canva Pro. I think it's amazing. Um, And so yeah, completely, completely uh, agree. So this week's question is, what's your favorite series? And that can either be one that you've written or one that you've read. So yeah, I'd love to know what is your favorite series. The book recommendation of the week this week is King of Battle and Blood by Scarlett St. Clair. Now, I bloody loved this book. I have had a look at the reviews and it's it's got a really widespread set of reviews. I mean, I think it's pretty fairly, it's overall, it's got quite a high rating, but um, I fucking loved it. Look, it is what I would call um, a fluff read. It's like total um, guilty pleasure type reading. Um, you know, it, it's uh, not a literary masterpiece. I still thought there were some lovely turns of phrases in there, but it is essentially vampire smart. Uh, and I fucking loved every single second of it. I loved the characters. I loved the plot. Uh, I just loved the world building. I loved all of it because it was escapism and it was fun and it was sexy. And, you know, sometimes you just want a fun, sexy escapism book. And it was exactly what I needed. So um, highly recommend recommend it. I literally didn't really put it down. It was one of those books that, you know, I just wanted to fall into a world and a book where, you know, oh God, look, it's vampire smart, okay? (laughs) But you should probably read it anyway, because I really fucking loved it and thought it was fun. Some people will hate it. That's completely fine. But that is the purpose of genre, right? And I'm not going to be ashamed for (laughs) for loving the things that I fucking love. It is straight also, because I know that some people listen in for the uh, queer uh, recommendations that I give, but uh, no, this one is straight, doesn't matter, still loved it anyway. Uh, So yeah, that is my recommendation for this week. And uh, yeah, 
Okay, so in personal update, wow. <laughs> it has been a week. I, okay, so I can't remember quite, I think I did, okay, so it's not been too many days since I last uh, recorded because I recorded late and now I'm recording on time. So I think I last recorded on Saturday and it's now Thursday. So it's not been quite a week since I did one of these episodes, but oh boy. So dear sweet naive past Sasha really thought that she could come back to work on day one and start smashing everything just like normal. What? What a fucking naive plonker I am because that is not what happened. (laughs) The first day was fucking hard. I think it took me until about lunchtime to even turn my brain on. Um, This is now day four back in the office and I'm slowly, slowly getting there. So it's like 20 past nine on Thursday, the 25th of uh, August. And I'm, you know, I've done all the prep work for the show and I'm now recording the show. So we're doing pretty fucking well (laughs) on only one cup of coffee as well. But I have been really surprised at how much my brain must have turned off because um, I have found it exceptionally difficult (laughs) to come back to work this week. Um, I have also, as most holidays do, I have also come back and I am rethinking things. Um, I want to spend more time writing. Um, I want to spend more time writing fiction. Um, well, I do want to write more nonfiction as well. I've actually got two nonfiction books that I want to write at the moment. Um, and if I can get them both done before the end of the tax year, then bloody brilliant. Um, but Broadly speaking, the thing that I want to do is spend more time writing. Uh, However, there are things that I do that bring in cash. (laughs) So that is a bit of a problem. Um, And I need to really look at the marketing and the strategy and what I'm doing to advertise and my systems. Um, So I'm, yeah, I just need to do a bit of a overall review, I think, because I've come back and I, I, my first week, instead of sitting down to write, I am doing eight presentations or 10 presentations, whatever it is. So I'm spending the whole week doing presentations, which is not what I want to do. It's not that I don't want to do them. It's just that I wanted to come back and write. And that is partly a scheduling error. And partly because yet again, I'm still saying yes to too many things. Um, And the the difficulty is, is some of the things I want to do, (laughs) well, not some, I do want to do them, but it's timing. And for some reason, these things tend to cluster together. And I'm not very good, even though I like planning and thinking about the future and like, you know, doing the the plans and they're not very good at executing them. So I tend to immediately get off track. Um, And so, yeah, I don't know. I just, I need to do some kind of looking at what I'm doing and the fact that I keep ending up in this situation where, you know, it's been seven weeks since I wrote a word. Seven fucking weeks since I wrote a single word on a page. Now, that is not the situation that I want to be in. Now, granted that three of those weeks were not in this country, but still, that's a month. And you know, it's going to be another 10 days or so before I get to write. So it's going to be over two months before I get to write. And I know that I wrote a book in three weeks before I went. It's not really the point. Um, 
I, I'm really stuck because I'm not one of these consistent writers. So I know that I'm never going to be somebody who just writes every day forever. Uh, I, I'm more of a need time to think, need some gaps, burn all the energy by writing really quickly and then not writing for a little while. But um, I still feel like my production schedule is all out of whack. So that is something that I need to look at. And I think I need to look at it with someone external. Um, I'm just not sure who or how or or quite how to do that yet. But anyway, so that's on my mind. Um, so what, what has been going on? Well, mostly I've just been doing presentations. Um, I completely rewrote the outline for the book that I'm about to write. Um, and then I decided <laughs> to write an additional nonfiction book this week. <laughs> I don't really help myself, do I? Oh my goodness me. And um and I've also got the audiobook. So the audiobook I'm gonna be working on next week because I need to the dead the deadline is pressing for these presentations. But I'm really close on the audiobook. So I'm still really hopeful that that will be out uh, shortly. So yeah, I mean, it's business as usual. I also feel like I'm slowly, slowly getting my uh, reading pace back. I really struggled um, the second quarter of this year, sort of edging, are we in quarter three? Wait, shit, yeah. So like middle of quarter two to middle of quarter three? Yeah, I have really struggled. And slowly but surely, I feel like my pace is starting to come back again, which is great because I do not want to fail my Goodreads challenge. <laughs> I don't like losing. Uh, surprising no one. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm starting to read again. Uh, I've been reading a lot of fantasy romance. I've been reading some nonfiction. So yeah, I'm really excited. But pretty much, I think that is probably my update for me because... I've had my head deep in presentations this week uh, and so not huge amounts to uh, update. I am going to be doing some more stuff on the anatomy of a bestseller uh, because I did rush to get it out before I left and so I haven't really had a proper launch so I'm definitely going to be putting out some more information about that. If you haven't got your copy already you can get it everywhere um, and the audiobook is hot on the tails of the launch as well. Okay, so the rebel of the week this week is Lottie Sarko. I hope that's how you pronounce that. If it's not, please do tell me. Lottie says, For months I have been dreaming of this moment and now it has come true. So here's my rebel story. I traditionally published my first children's book this spring. Immediately after, I emailed my publisher telling them that I'd like to write a sequel, which I had already mentioned when we worked on the first book. I got a very long and almost rude reply about how this book was meant to be a standalone, and if it was meant to be a series, we should have considered that when writing part one. Which I did, because I introduced characters that weren't relevant at all in the first book, but would become important later. My publisher finished her long and dismissive email, saying, saying that of course I'm always allowed to send in a man manuscript if I really wanted to. So that's what I did. I wrote a killer sequel and today my publisher called me. They want to publish part two. Yay! I feel like such a rebel because I didn't let her negative email discourage me. Amen. And now my sequel is coming out next year. And what's even better, she already asked for more. Oh my god, that is fantastic. Ever since I sent in the manuscript, I've been dreaming of emailing you. Oh, emailing you one day and here we are uh, rebel of the week lots of love from finland lottie oh my goodness me i fucking love this story i can't believe your, your publisher sent you such a dismissive email that's so 
I don't know, like you would expect publishers to, to have your back or whatever, but either way, I'm so fucking pleased for you that um, you wrote it, you wrote a killer sequel, and now they are after loads more. Oh, that is just fantastic, and what a happy ending, and what a positive rebel story. I absolutely fucking love it. If you would like to be a rebel of the week, then please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or something in between. You can email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. A huge thank you to my existing patrons. This week joining us we have Christina Kilada. Kilada? Yes, I hope that, again, if I've pronounced that incorrectly, please do tell me. Um, huge, huge thank you to all my patrons, old, new, middling, um, been there since the start. You guys are the best. I love the community. Um, we had Poison and Prose last night and it was super fun to see all your faces. And yeah, I'm just super grateful to every single one of you who helps to support the show financially, financially to help to support me, uh, helps pay for my time. And yeah, you guys are just the literal best. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes as well as bonus content, you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. All right, that is it from me this week. So let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am insanely excited because I have one of my writing BFFs on the show. Helen Scheurer is the YA fantasy author of best-selling trilogy, The Oromir Chronicles, and The Curse of the Siren Queen Quartet. Her work has been highly praised for its strong, flawed female characters and its action-packed plots. More recently, she has also delved into publishing advice for authors with her debut nonfiction book, How to Write a Successful Series, which I had the pleasure and honour of reading an advanced copy of. Helen's love of writing and books led her to pursue a Bachelor of Creative Writing at the University of Wollongong and a Master's of Publishing at the University of Sydney. Now a full-time author, Helen lives amidst the mountains in central Otago, New Zealand, and is constantly dreaming up new stories. Hey! Hi, thank you for having me back. Yeah, (laughs) welcome back. So you were actually originally on episode 95 back in July 21. July 21, that was like a year ago. Yeah, nearly a year ago. Can you believe it? It was like 50 years ago. I know it must be at least 10 million WhatsApp memos ago, at least. Definitely. (laughs) Um, So I know I know what you've been up to since then, but why don't you tell everyone else what you've been up to since July 21? Right. So July 21 was when um, I think as we recorded uh, A Layer of Bones, which is the first book in Curse of Siren Queen, it was either just out or just about to be out. So since then, that's come out. The second book in Curse of Siren Queen with Dagger and Song and the third, The Fabric of Chaos, they've all come out. Um, So that was an intense nine months or so. And, uh, yeah, then I've also somewhere in there written a nonfiction book, as you you said before. Um, And I'm working on a brand-new series at the moment. So 
lots <laughs> lots has happened yeah it has you are a fucking machine and everybody needs, needs to listen to everything that you say because it's fantastic <laughs> so we are going to talk about your new book which as I said I did have the pleasure of reading and everybody needs to go and buy a copy because it is fantastic um but let's kind of dive into series and like what you do so how do you approach writing a series and like what do you think writers need to know going in like what do they need to plan for okay so I I guess I'll preface this by saying obviously everybody writes very differently and what works for me might not work for other people Um, I think we're going to touch on this a little bit later but I have done my best to include different methods throughout the book that is not just what I do just to be more well-rounded because as you know I'm very sort of rigid in my approach approach to things um what am I number three discipline or something like that I'm so glad you started with strengths and not me yeah (laughs) everyone drink to be fair it's your fault that I do this (laughs) it's a hundred percent my fault I'll own that one (laughs) so yeah just to just to preface this answer with that that you know everybody's different and you know my way is not necessarily the the right way or the only way or anything you you also have consistency right so you do the same thing over and over again with the with the yeah yeah, I mean, it it has changed over the years because I think, you know, you and, and this is strategic, like you, you refine and you optimize your process. Um, but so for me, the thing that I've found to be really important, which is something I think everybody should do before they write a book slash series, is that you need to do your market research. I think that's something a lot of us, when you first start out, you, you write the book of your heart or the series of your heart. And I think a lot of us, because we often read in the genre that we're writing in, we think, you know, we're, we're pretty well versed in the, in, the, in the market, in the audience. And I think that means we've got a good sort of base layer of knowledge. But when it comes to writing a series, like it's a huge investment in effort and time and money. And you want to make sure that you're hitting all those notes from the beginning. So you need to understand your market on a much deeper level, I think. And so what I've come to do over the last, well, I'm now working on my third series, um, is that I do a lot more in-depth research. So coming up with comp titles, reading the reviews of the comp titles, studying the covers, studying the price, studying the, the tropes, the point of view, the structure everything that I could possibly learn from a big sample of books in my target genre. That's what I do first before anything else now. Um, And I mean, that, that is something that I've learned along the way. I didn't start off doing that. Um, But yeah, so I definitely encourage people to do market research from the beginning. Um, I think even if you're a discovery writer versus a plotter, there is this element of planning involved and it's not necessarily, um, you know, coming up with every point in the story, but it is things like studying the market because that gives you the information you need in order to hit those reader expectations along the way. Um, So that is the major, major lesson takeaway thing that I'd tell everybody to do. The other one is a little bit more personal that I sort of learned the hard way was not having a series Bible, um, which I think a lot of people think that a series Bible is just for fantasy or sci-fi because you're having these like big worlds and, you know, there's, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of things to remember, but 
personally, I think any anybody writing in any genre can have a series Bible and it can be as simple as listing the cast and, you know, what they look like or listing the location. What's the coffee shop called? What's the, what's the main street that everybody meets on? That kind of thing. Um, or it can be big stuff like magic system, the different countries and continents in your fantasy world. And the reason I think that's really important is just for saving yourself a lot of headaches and heartaches down the road. Um, because if you are writing, you know, 60 to 120,000 word books and you're writing multiple in a series, you don't want to have to reread your own books every single time just to find out a particular detail. Um, so yeah, I could carry on about that all day, but that's, uh, those are the two main things I would start with, I think. Yeah, I think it's interesting because so many of us do exactly what you said, which is write the series that that was like the reason that we came to writing. And, yeah. you know, most of us come to writing because we get a really cool idea that we've been inspired by by the stuff that we read and the stuff that we read. I think when you when you just read you very easy like you read without any intentional deconstruction, you very mm-hmm. easily pick up tone and you pick up atmosphere and like story type but you Mm -hmm. don't necessarily pick up the more nuanced detail so I think many of us are quite good at writing a book that would like tonally or thematically fit into the genre but we don't necessarily package it correctly Um, and we don't necessarily put in enough tropes or enough like I don't know, that id stuff, right? That Jennifer Lynn Barnes talks about. Um, yeah. And that that is, you know, we almost have to just write the series um, just to get a series out so that we've practiced and that we've done it. So yeah, I love that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, one of my patrons, Matt, says, how do you decide something is a book one in a series versus a standalone? And there's sort of um, like a part B to that, which is how do you then make individual story arcs satisfying while tying in an effective overarching series arc? Okay, so the first part of that question, I should tell you that um, Jennifer, uh, not Jennifer, you're talking about Jennifer Lynn Barnes. I mean, Jenna, Jenna Moresi, she's just posted a video on, is it a standalone? Is it a series? So that's literally just come out um, yesterday. So it's in the forefront of my mind. So I'll point you there because that's really, really good video. Um, For me, it's, it's a, a sort of combination between a gut thing and also knowing the genre, knowing the market. So I generally have a pretty good idea now that whatever I'm writing is part of a series because that's the not only the expectation within my genre, which is fantasy, um, it's also the expectation that I've set up for my own audience. So over the last four and a half years or so, I've published series um, and that is what my readers have come to expect from me. Um, but also because I am really familiar with my own genre, I know that it should be in a series. Um, that's the, the reader expectation. Um, but if you're in a sort of different place, one thing I always sort of think about is what's, how much sort of content do you have in terms of ideas? And then think about the length of the books in your target genre. So I'm always going to come back to knowing the market, knowing your, your target audience. It's almost um, like so. you have high competition. <laughs> <laughs> what is that for me? Number five. I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, it is, it is about knowing, just knowing those expectations. So um, it'll be very different. Say, you know, you might have your, I'm going to start that again. Um, You need to know if you've got enough content in terms of story arc, character development, um, setting, all of that good stuff to fill three 60,000 word books or three 120,000 word books, or, you know, is it only enough for one 60,000 word book or one 120,000 word book? And I just sort of try and like, I'm not saying that everybody should be a plotter or anything like that, but I think you can get a general sense of how much content you have to fill a certain amount of pages or words. Um, So that is the first sort of place that I go or that I would recommend people go to, to know if it's a standalone or a series, like is, is there enough? And also are you going to be filling it with unnecessary stuff or is there enough to go across multiple books? Um, The other thing is that, um, how do you make, what was it? How do you make the individual story arc satisfying yeah. while time? Oh, okay. Um, so that I, I think every, every book within a, ster- a series should still have its own complete story arc. And that's how you avoid things like middle book syndrome. Um, I actually, with my first series, when I was drafting the second book, um, one of my beta readers came back to me and said, that it was just, it, it wasn't complete and that it was, um, it had that middle book syndrome. And that was because it didn't have a clear cut, like I use the three act structure. So I know not everybody uses that, but for me with, when I was working on that second book, it potentially didn't have a clear first, second and third act. And it didn't have its own resolution at the end. And I understand that obviously each book then fits into a series arc, but I think in order to make things satisfying for the reader, you do have to have a complete story arc from beginning to end in each book while tying into the overall series arc. So it's almost like there are several things going on in series. You have the series arc, then for each book you have their own story arc, and then you tie each one off in each book, but essentially you ask a new question at the end of each book to go on to the the following one, if that makes sense. Um, so I, I find in order to create satisfying story arcs within a series, I stick with the three act structure because that just helps, um, anchor me and kind of check off what I need to do in each book. Um, but yeah, that's sort of where I would start. And then I think getting beta reader feedback is incredibly important because often we've been working on a book or a series for a very, very long time and we're too close to it to identify these sorts of issues. Mm -hmm. Um, So when in doubt and when you don't know what to do anymore, I would get feedback from another author or an editor, that sort of thing. Yeah, I love that. And I think like if you look at the Hunger Games, it's it's kind of a process of layering. So like with the Hunger Mm. Games, you know book one is book one because the question that is asked at the beginning of the book is answered by the end of the book. Mm -hmm. Underneath that, there is an on running thread, which is incomplete, but it's like a, not, it's not even like an A plot or a B plot. It's almost like a C thread that runs Mm -hmm. all the way underneath. So like the conflict between 
snow and like the capital and the society is bubbling, almost like you're layering villains in Harry Potter, right? I know we don't talk about she who must not be named, but mm-hmm. for the sake yeah. of a, uh, an example that everybody understands, um, each book has an individual villain, um, at, but all along there is um, a bigger, badder villain all the way through the the um books and then so in in the hunger games you've got the first hunger games where you know the whole point of the story is that she must the conclusion to that is whether or not she survives at the end of the games and then the second book is where she's dragged back in to the games and so the natural conclusion is did she or did she not survive the second set of games and then of course the third one is then the the big battle it's just one long massive epic battle isn't it really for like the whole so I think that's another way of looking at it is like when when is your main story question answered um because it should be in one book each book should have one question that is answered and then if you have some underlying bigger conflict that you have sewn or threaded that is what takes it through the rest of the series right yeah absolutely and I think what what you've touched on there is is something um that Zoe York touches on quite a bit in her romance, your brand and goals and all those books. Um, and several other authors talk about as well is that basically in the first book, you are laying the foundations for the reader expectation for your book and do that well in the first book. People love it. Like um, with Hunger Games, for example, it's competition. Um, that is one of the big universal fantasies. Um, <laughs> oh, no, we don't like that here, do we? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but then in the second book, Suzanne Collins takes that, does it again, but does it bigger and better mm-hmm. and twists it. And then the next book takes all the themes and stuff that she's set up from the first and second books and make it makes it bigger and better again. And I think that's also a really sort of good formula to apply to your own series is mm-hmm. take what the readers have loved from your first book and make it bigger, better, badder in the second one, you know, yeah. and then the third one again. Yeah. Oh, love it. Okay. Um, so like, when you have a series, there are different ways to approach character arcs. So obviously, you know, for your protagonist in particular, you need them to change in the first book. So how do you plan for that? How do you plan a character arc? Do they just change once in the first book, then they're the same? Do they change in every book? Do they change in a different way? Like, what does a character arc look like on an individual book level versus the whole series level. Right. So for me, I think that a character should essentially learn something in every single book and they don't necessarily have to undergo this huge metamorphosis in each book because the metamorphosis happens across the the arc of the series. But what I think needs to happen in each book is that they learn something. So um, in in my Curse of the Siren Queen series, in the first book, um, there are these creatures called sirens and for thousands of years they've hated humans, they've hunted them down, blah, blah, blah. And then there is a um, competition. So uh, A Lair of Bones is like a trial tournament style uh, book. <laughs> and one of the parts, like one of the elements to the tournament is that the competitors who are sirens have to keep a human alive while they go through all these deadly tournaments. Um, 
And so my character arc in this particular book is part of that is Ro, who's the protagonist, learning to not only work with this human, but eventually you see that they become allies and then friends throughout the course of the book. And then over the course of the series, that relationship changes again, develops, deepens, all of that stuff throughout the course of the series. And each book, there are scenes with her and him and you get to see just these subtle um, changes in their relationships and that friendship developing developing and deepening. And so that's an example of her sort of learning to question um, what she's been taught. There's there, This relationship then um, basically showcases a bunch of different themes throughout the book. And, yeah, you can, you can see how in each book individually their relationship changes, but then how the, over the course of the series their relationship represents a much bigger thing is her questioning the whole thing that she's been taught for her entire life and the, the siren way of life and, and all of that stuff. Um, so I think in each book the character has to learn something. Um, I think it also depends on genre and the reader expectations again, and it depends on what sort of obstacles they're, they're facing um, in each book. So I'm not sure if that's answered the question. But. Yeah, I think it does. You know, it does because I think, you know, there are different ways of approaching it, right? So like you've said, you can go on a deepening journey where they may only have like one arc, but then after that arc, they, they step a level deeper into that and enrich it and like grow deep. Um, yeah grow deeper the thing that they have learned and then I suppose there are other things that you can do um, so like with Katniss you know in the movies at least she has quite a flat character arc she doesn't really change she changes the world around her so like that's a different way of approaching it Um, but as you said she faces different obstacles and each time those obstacles are harder so although she's not um, changing in terms of personality in the movies she is getting more expert more expert great (laughs) English there Sasha Uh, she's getting her level of expertise is growing her level of skill is growing so she is growing as a person Mm -hmm. and then I suppose there's like a different like so in my series um uh my character kind of grows in terms of like independence and um maturity I think in the first Mm -hmm. book it's a real coming of age and then by the time um, you know, in the second book, she gets very empowered. She deepens her romantic relationships. And then in the third book, it's a complete U-Haul, not on necessarily everything that she's learned, but she experiences a different emotion. Like she goes through grief and she's pushed to the limits of like a different, something she's never experienced. It's like a different emotion, a different, um, you know, a different situation that takes her, I don't know, what's the word, so far into a place that she's not able to cope with that like that's a different type of learning it's like a different completely different to anything that she's done before so you know you could change the emotion you could change their experience you can um give them something else to learn and I think it also depends on whether or not you're doing a sequential series or an episodic Mm -hmm. series so like yeah 
episodic in terms of like each book is a crime or each book is a case that gets solved by the end of the case but the characters continue through versus a series which is more what we do um where or what we have done to date where each book follows on so I don't know do you ever have you ever read like episodic series when I was a teenager I read a lot of crime but I don't know I I think I went through that phase as well um and and the crime shows and stuff so I in in my book I call them static versus dynamic dynamic series but to me static and episodic are are the same thing like things like where yeah exactly each book or each episode it's the same characters same setting but it's a new crime and they they follow a very um formulaic um structure Whereas a dynamic series, you couldn't start on book three. Whereas a crime series, you can start anywhere. And yeah. And I kind of think with those one, like I'm just, and this is (laughs) any crime listeners are probably going to roll their eyes and be like, oh my gosh, you know, fuck all. (laughs) But um, like the last thing that's crime that I watched was Luther. And so Mm. like, the where that growth happens is in the personal life that just like falls to pieces kind of thing and yeah. that's really where the growth is rather than like growth in the job or growth in like I don't know crime skills or whatever those things t- tend to stay the static as they go through but mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's the personal life that is a massive roller coaster yeah. um, and if you haven't watched Luther you really fucking should because it is, it is it a is masterclass good. in villainy um I okay think you- you hit something, you hit on something with the coming of age thing as well, like particularly with um, with fantasy, you know, initially you might have a secret heir who is a reluctant hero who then learns to accept responsibility and then, you know, five books in suddenly they're queen and they've got to learn how to rule. So, I mean, there's, there's certain tropes, I guess, that have like an inbuilt uh, character arc, character development that you can sort of structure your series around as well so there's loads of ways to do it loads of ways and I think the best the best way to learn how it's done well and the different ways to do it is to read and read in your own genre yes I completely agree read all of the things know your fucking market (laughs) oh everyone's gonna hate me for saying that but it's true Okay, so in your book, you also have a section um, where you uh, talk to writers who are more of the writing into the dark. They don't sort of pre-plot. What was your biggest takeaway um, from those writers who write into the dark? What? Yeah, talk about that. <laughs> okay, so um, for context, I am a plotter and I'm very... Um, particular about how I do things, um, very rigid in the way that I do things. And so it was actually Sasha who pointed out to me when she was reading the book that I might need a different perspective for the people who are not that way inclined. Um, So I interviewed two really successful, wonderful authors who are discovery writers. And I'd say the biggest takeaway for me from learning about their processes, because it was all very, very new to me. That's it's I'm in awe of people who can write entire series. And both of them have written multiple series. One of them is an epic fantasy author who writes 200, 300,000 word books in series. So to me, to do that without a plan, I would just, I have no idea where to start. And so, yeah, the biggest takeaway I have from talking with both of those people is that even though they don't um, outline or plan ahead in that respect, they both have systems in place to prevent the issues that I worry about when 
I think about the idea of not planning. So um, one of the authors, basically, as he writes the books, keeps a wall of post-it notes that is basically, it is basically outlining as he goes and he will, on the post-it note, say, you know, a couple of dot points of what happens in each chapter, put it on the wall so that then when he needs to think about what's happened or what needs to happen, he can look at what he's created as he was writing to then drive him forward. Um, and the other author, one of the things that she did in order to help writing her series without outlining was that she, um, the big thing she did was brainstorm the big bad, the, the, the huge thing that kind of links the whole series together. How does that develop? How does that um, affect the characters and stuff? So while both of them don't outline and they both I think specifically said to me that the idea of outlining kills their creativity, which I know is a, a common sort of um, concern with people who don't like outlining. Um, so while they both don't outline, they do have systems in place that prevent plot holes, that prevent inconsistency in the story, that still make, make sure that the, the characters are developed throughout the series. Um, also, I think, David, who's one of the authors, he um, writes a couple of books ahead. And so he's not, he's not writing, then publishing that book and then writing the next one. So he does have the wiggle room that if he needs to change something, that book's not yet published. So he can go back and make a, a small tweak if need be. Um, but yeah, it just, it did fascinate me that they had these very clever systems in place for you know, combating all these things that I worry about. And I mean, even if you do outline, you still come across these issues. So it was really interesting to me that they both had these awesome systems in place for making sure that they did the best work that they could sort of thing. Yeah, I find it so fascinating. Like the more I talk to authors and the more I hear about different processes, the more it absolutely fascinates me. Um, and I like... I have gone on a journey of discovering my process. And the most ridiculous thing is, is that I had a process before I knew I had a process because I was very convinced that like, I didn't do the same thing, <laughs> except that I literally do the exact same thing every time. And it took the strengths coaches to kind of point that out. And, and the weird thing for me is that like, I don't ever really write an outline but I do a lot of pre-writing so like I have to know the story before I write the story but I don't necessarily like I don't know I will iterate and iterate and I'll have post-its and then I'll throw post-its away and then you know I'll have some more post-its and I'll think and think and think and then I'll change things in my brain and then I'll think some more and then I'll do some more post-its but like it doesn't ever really get more than just just some post-its but like I, I don't know. I just, I have to know and feel the story. Does that, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. That makes sense. I mean, and you were saying before we started recording that, you know, you can percolate over a single idea for years before you actually sit down to write. So, I mean, that's still, that's another form of preparation and planning, even if you're just mulling it over in your head. It's something that, you know, you're thinking about in the shower, thinking about while you're washing up and then you don't write it for a couple of years. It's, it's still ticking away at the back of your head. It's still developing. It is. And I do kind of feel like I must be some kind of plotter because I have to know the story. I have to know like key scenes, but like, I just know, 
I don't know. It's so weird. Like I know little bits or I know what happens or why it happens, but I don't, you know, I don't know necessarily the content of what is actually literally going to happen in that scene. It's very weird. But anyway, yeah, I am just bollocksing on now. Um, uh, okay. So what uh, craft tips do you have for listeners to help make their series compelling to readers? Okay. So besides the usual things of like, you know, character development, authentic worlds, um, you know, a riveting story, all that stuff that you need to have in any book. Um, I think with series, you need to craft compelling, believable hooks. You need to use uh, breadcrumbs throughout. You need to end chapters on cliffhangers. You need to introduce new hooks at the end of each book to drive the readers into the next book. Um, So that's in terms of a series, those are the things that I think are essential. Like, I think we all need to just go, yep, okay, obviously for any book, character development, all of that is all very important. But specifically when it comes to series, you do need to have this thread that takes the reader from one book to the next. You need those driving forces. And what does that look like? So how do you have a hook into the next book without creating a cliffhanger? So it's, it is a tricky, it's a tricky thing because again, you need to know reader expectations. You also need to consider how quickly you're releasing as well. So I think in certain genres or in certain release strategies, it's more acceptable to have a cliffhanger than others. So if I'm releasing once a month or you know once every two weeks, having a cliffhanger, I don't think is a huge issue. However, if I'm releasing one book a year, you don't want to piss off your readers to have them wait a year to then get the resolution or the answers to that story. So I sort of, uh, in, in my nonfiction book, I talk about soft cliffhangers versus um, like hard cliffhangers. And to me, you can definitely, I think a soft cliffhanger is ending a book on a question but having answered the question of the current book, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, whereas a hard cliffhanger is literally ending the story with someone hanging off the cliff and they don't know if they're going to die or live. How do you create a hook into the next book without it just being like a cliffhanger? And so, yeah, I suppose you were going into the difference between soft and hard and but mm. making sure that somebody has actually completed the story so it's like completing the story but still what is that thread into the next like what are some of those threads what can they be yeah okay exactly so the I, I always come back to that sort of analogy of the thread so I suppose in book one you've got your book one story arc but all the while you're also building up your series arc so in book one at the end you answer the question of the individual book arc But then the question at the end, I I suppose, like, again, going, I know we don't want to talk too much about Harry Potter, but it is just one of those, like, universal, um, universally, like, understood series. So um, in book one of Harry Potter, uh, they're thinking that, obviously, Snape, it has, uh, he's out to get the Philosopher's Stone. um, And at the end, we realise it's not Snape, it's Quirrell and they save the Philosopher's Stone and all is well, but there is this underlying question that will Voldemort return. But we have had that satisfying 
storyline, we do get the, you know, he gets back on the Hogwarts Express and all everything seems great. But the open loop, the open question of the series is still there. And it's, you know, will will he return and how how much worse will it get? That sort of thing. The other thing that I like about academia stories is that, you know, if there are three academic years, then there are going to be three books at least. And there may be one book that comes like afterwards, like after they finish education. So that's why, you know, in Hogwarts, there are... I don't know, I can't remember, seven years in Hogwarts or whatever it is. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and so you know there are going to be at least seven books. Um, And so that kind of makes sense as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, cool. What are, oh, sorry, I'm going to ask a different question. So same kind of question, but for later books in a series, I think a lot of readers find that their books kind of like trail off in that sort Mm -hmm. of soggy middle of a series, especially when it's a really long series Mm -hmm. Um, until you then like get to the end of the end of the series. and, And it's those last sort of book or so that really pick up again. So what advice do you have for making sure that the middle books aren't soggy middles, but they also land with a punch? I know you've talked a little bit about that earlier, but if you can go into some more detail or tactics. Yeah, I can, I can try. I think um, like, again, the whole planning stage, I think is quite important in understanding that each book needs its own arc and it needs to be complete. So I did talk about um, my own experience of having one of the earlier Oromir Chronicle drafts being that saggy middle. And it was that there was, it didn't, it didn't answer any questions. It didn't, um, satisfy any of those hooks, those breadcrumbs. So I suppose coming back to breadcrumbs and hooks and things, it's not like, I think you need to have enough of those that you answer some in each book, all the while still asking the overall series question. Um, Another thing I would say is that where I think individual books within a series, like some of those middle books go wrong, is that they sort of um, drop the ball with pacing and structure. And so you don't want, you know, to set your first book up, it's this epic, big, fast-paced page turner, and then everything slows in the second or the third. I think also, depending on the genre, but with a series, you are always building and building up to this huge climactic moment of the series finale. So each book potentially needs to raise the stakes. It needs to get deeper with the character development. Um, And it does need to feel like a complete story. And I think that's where the structure comes into it and the pacing comes into it as well. They need to be carefully considered. They need to be quite refined. Um, So, yeah, I think definitely pacing and structure you need to be aware of but also the the planning and the the work that you do in setting up the the breadcrumbs, that thread that you're putting throughout, there needs to be multiple ones of those because you need to be satisfying readers with each book. So, you know, you might ask a, a question, question A in book one, and that gets answered in book two. You might ask question B in book one, and that gets answered in book three. And so you, you constantly have these, I guess threads is the best way of describing it. Like some might tie off in book two, some might tie off in book three, but you've always got a few that just keep bringing the reader through the series and into each new book. Um, that's sort of, I guess, the best way I can, I can describe it. 
What do you think are the most common mistakes writers make when approaching a series? Um, so firstly, not doing enough market research, but I've harped on enough about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> another big one I think is this sort of um, need to put every single book, uh, every single idea they've ever had into either the me, first book in the series. Me, me, me. Yeah, me too, me too. Everybody <laughs> does it. You get yes. overexcited. Um, so either putting every idea you've ever had into the first book in the series and then not having enough content for the rest of the series or putting every idea you've ever had into your first series because you don't need, like, save your ideas. They don't all need to go into the one thing. Um, what I do is I have uh, basically an ideas dump folder on my computer that when I have an idea that is probably not um, relevant or, you know, appropriate for the series that I'm working on, I just chuck it in this other folder. So then when I'm working on something new, I can return to that folder and think, okay, what, what, are, what ideas are in here that now can be applied to the new series? But putting every idea you've ever had into book one or series one is just messy and it, it's unnecessary. Um, I think, yeah, being a little bit more um, particular about the ideas that you're putting, like really uh, interrogate each idea before you put it in. Is it necessary? Does it um, enhance the story? Does it, is it appropriate for the genre? All of that stuff. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a big mistake. Like I've made it myself and I see other people making it as well. Just getting overexcited and thinking everything needs to happen all at once. Yeah. I definitely made my first book way too complicated. Yeah, I same. read the bestseller code recently and that talked about how books on like the New York times bestseller list are actually plot wise, incredibly simple. Um, mm. And they tend to have like one plot one thing the book is about and then like one or maybe two at the absolute most like B and C plots like but that is it um and what it enables the authors to do is to go much deeper into the characters and the human connections and the depth of that plot um and it also keeps the story simple and therefore keeps the pace up which enables the reader then to power through the books which is what we all want to do secretly anyway um, exactly. except people who want to read epic fantasy that sweeps and goes on for 10,000 years George R.R. <laughs> R. Martin anyway um okay talk a little bit about reader magnets um I know that a lot of authors struggle with them and yet they're really really important to hooking readers in for the long term so like what kind of reader magnets have you done for your series like are have you just got one for like your whole mailing list do you do different ones for your different series like how does that work Okay, um, so for me, reader magnets have been an incredibly powerful tool in not only sort of keeping readers engaged between releases, because in, initially when I started the Oromir Chronicles, I only released a book a year, which in the indie world is quite, um, quite a long time to leave between releases. Um, and then even um, my second series, it's still not rapid release. Like I've put out a lot more books in a shorter space of time, but it's still, um, it's still not when we were talking before about cliffhangers and that, you know, it's potentially more acceptable if you release closer together, I don't really fall into that category. So 
I used reader magnets for two different sort of purposes. I guess one is to keep readers engaged between releases. Um, so I have a series of reader magnets for my first series, and then I have a trilogy of reader magnets for my second series. So I do, um, for each series, I do their own reader magnets. Um, so I, with the Oromir Chronicles, I released, I think, three reader magnets between each um, release. So I did three before book one came out. I did three before book two came out and then another three before book three came out. That's a um, lot of fucking reader magnets. It is. And I, and I will say that, firstly, these um, reader magnets, my initial reader magnets, weren't uh, novellas. They were short stories. So the first the first couple might have been about 4,000 and they did get longer as they went on. Um, I think the longest Oromir reader magnet was maybe about eight, 10,000 words. Um, and it is a lot of effort. Um, and I had them, I think I had them professionally edited. I didn't have covers done for them. And at the time, you know, this was um, four and a half, five years ago now, I didn't get covers done for them. And I don't think I even used book funnel at the time. I just created a PDF of them and send them out. Um, it was very unsophisticated. Um, but what it did do was get my readers who had already read, um, say, Heart of Mist, and it got them to invest more emotionally in those characters because I created prequels. So Oromir has um, four points of view. Um, one was a child, so I didn't do a prequel stuff for him. But for the main other three that were adults, basically any sort of event that was alluded to in the main series for one of those characters, I could create a short story around. And it was sort of like this behind the scenes glimpse at events in their lives that made them who they were in the main series. And I think readers really, really liked that. Um, and it kept them engaged between, you know, a year long between when the next book came out, got them to invest more emotionally with each character. So I used, I used them in that respect. Um, I used them to get on the mailing list, uh, get readers on the mailing list um, from like a, a cold, cold uh, perspective. I say that makes sense, <laughs> like a cold call, but mm. like reader magnet. Um, I didn't do that as um, like deeply as I have done with Curse of the Siren Queen and those reader magnets. Um, I think my Oromir, Oromir reader magnets were all about rewarding the existing readers and keeping them engaged between releases. But with, um, with Curse of the Siren Queen, I created, and I only did three, um, but they were much longer, so maybe about 14,000, 15,000 words each, so novelettes. Um, and I did those in a much more sort of professional way. They were, again, they were professionally edited, but I had covers done. I formatted them. I used book funnel. And having covers and stuff is makes it much easier to get um cold subscribers onto your mailing list because it looks like a much more finished product. Um, so I have used those to get people into the Curse of the Siren Queen series. So um, they're called Siren Queen Origins and they focus on the protagonist's mother who in the opening of A Lair of Bones is in prison. And it takes her story and the, the three um, prequels are when she's like growing up. And it's sort of building up to what happened to get her from this young, energetic siren 
into the world's worst prison, basically. And how did you um, promote those? Um, I promoted them on, what did I do? I must have done a few like book funnel swaps and things. Um, I think I did a short stint advertising them on Facebook. Um, and I think, I think that's it really. Like, and also obviously sending them to my um, current list. But one thing, so I think I've, I've gone a little bit off track, but basically I use reader magnets for two purposes. One to keep readers engaged or three really one to keep readers engaged um one to get people on new people on my mailing list but also something that I don't think a lot of people utilize as much as they could is actually using reader magnets to take readers from one series to the next series so um at the end of war of mist which is the third and final book in the Oromir chronicles um there was a race of creatures that gets introduced that plays a huge part in the end of the book, basically. And these creatures, and we visit the setting, which is a layer of bones. And so then the reader magnets are set in the layer of bones. And we then get to know that these creatures are called sirens and this is their way of life and blah, blah, blah. And we're really sort of anchored in that setting. And then the first book in Curse of the Siren Queen is called A Lair of Phones. And it's literally taking the reader by the hand from the Oromir Chronicles to the prequels to the main series. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a strategy I think that's worked very well for me. So it's also fucking genius. About... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'm not sure where I got that from. If I've, if I've um, taken that from someone else or if I did it myself, just thinking that was all your genius, darling, all your genius. But yeah, I've, I've gone off on a big tangent there, but that's no. how I use reader magnets. No, but I think it's so useful and it's interesting to hear it from a like a working author who's actually using these methods and putting them into practice. Um, so uh, let's say one of two things happens and you have a series and either you get bored of it or you decide you want to work on something else or it's just not working, it's not selling. Um and you want to wrap it up early. How do you do that? And I suppose like vice versa, let's say you've wrapped up a series and then it it then sells like gangbusters and you're a bit fucked because you've <laughs> completed the, 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 the plot. Yeah. What, yeah, what, what do you do in those circumstances? Um, so again, this is where I think planning um, plays a big part. So in um, How to Write a Successful Series, I have a whole chapter on what I call exit and expansion strategies. And the sort of... Um, gist of it is planning in linked duologies or linked trilogies so say I want to write a nine book series that is a huge commitment of time money um mental energy all of that stuff um and say I get to book two which I think is still quite early to be assessing how successful a series is, but just for the sake of this example, say I get to book two and books one and two have absolutely flopped and I'm, I'm beaten down. I don't, I don't want to write it anymore, but you know, I, it was a nine book series. However, if I have planned in advance in sort of linked trilogies, so I guess what I mean is having, so for the nine books, every three books has its own, sort of arc. And if I get to the end of book two, everything's falling apart. And I've, I've decided I don't want to write the next Tower of the Many books. 
if I've planned in linked trilogies, it actually has a natural end after book three that I can then sort of tie up any loose ends and go, okay, I'm, I'm done. Um, so that, that is the, the gist of, of, of the idea really. And you can do that in, in duologies as well. So if three books is, is too much to sort of consider, you can do it in, in duologies. Um, but also it can work the other way around, say by book two, I've, I've, I've planned for three books, but maybe, maybe nine by the end of book two, everything's going gangbusters and I'm a millionaire and I want to keep going with the series. Then I have potentially an open loop or a question at the end of the third book that then can give me another three books that then can give me another three books. Um, so it all, it all sounds a bit vague, but I think it depends on your genre and all of that stuff as well. Um, but I think having, having done the planning and giving yourself the flexibility to go either way is really important. Um, and that's, that's what I've done with both my previous series, more so in Curse of the Siren Queen. Um, but having, just having, I guess what it is for having a expansion strategy is having a slightly open-ended ending. And it's not everybody got married and um, lived happily ever after and the end. It could be everybody lived happily ever after and then, you know, had a kid or something. And then that kid could then go on to carry the next couple of books. That's a terrible example, but you sort of get, get the idea. Um, so, yeah. And I think, I think having planned in linked duologies or linked trilogies, if you do need to have like an emergency exit, having that option there to tie it off after that first um, three book arc helps prevent things from feeling really rushed and the reader goes, what it's, it's at an end, you know? Um, Cause you don't want to, even though that, that series might not be going well or you don't feel too great about it. You don't want to end any series with a reader feeling ripped off because that's, <laughs> that's bad reviews. That's, that's just bad all around. And then they're not, that reader is not then going to go on to try your new series. Um, so yeah, I think, with series, even if you're not a plotter, um, there is this element of forward thinking that is involved. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So last question then, um, do all books in a series need to be structured similarly? That's, that's a really interesting one because I think like, I think there's this sort of tug of war between artistic choice and reader genre expectation. Cause I know a lot of us want to be really creative and want to be different. Um, I think if you want to make money, there are certain things that you have to adhere to in terms of what your audience is expecting and what makes them want to buy more in that series and then more of your overall back catalog. Um, so I would say that the first book in your series sets up the expectation of what's to come in the books that follow. Um, it, it really depends on your genre because there are, there are certain genres that, you know, the first book, say, could be from the woman's point of view and the second book could be from the man's point of view and the timelines are parallel. Um, but more often than not, I think that first book basically tells your reader what to expect from the next however many books. So with um, the Oromir Chronicles, 
that was a four-person point of view book. Um, the first book was four points of view. So then the next three books were um, the four points of view, whereas Siren Queen, one point of view, one point of view throughout. Um, but I would say have, have a look at what your comp titles are doing and also not only what they're doing, but what their reviews say. So mm. I recently I was doing some research for my own um, new series and I had read um, a particular book, which uh, I think it was on, on book two. So the, the first book was two points of view and that made complete sense and it, and it, and it worked really well. But then in uh, the second book, halfway through the second book, this other point of view was introduced and it, it sort of was very jarring to me. And then for the rest of the series, it carried on the three points of view. Um, and I, for me, that felt like it jarred. And I was like, but maybe that's, that's a done thing. Like maybe everybody really likes that. And that's just my personal um, preference. But then I read through some of the reviews and that was one of the big criticisms of the book was that this point of view had been randomly introduced at an odd point throughout the series. Um, so, yeah, in, in terms of uh, like all action and, you know, pacing and stuff, I definitely think that that first book sets up what you need to do throughout. You can't have, you know, an action packed first book and then like a really slow, like inner emotional journey for the second book. I, I think that's a one way ticket to bad reviews. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny. Cause I just finished a book yesterday, uh, which will remain <laughs> nameless, um, that, uh, basically introduced a, another point of view written in a different tense, oh. um, really late in the book. The only reason they got away with it is because the book was in parts. So there was part one. And then a clear division when it said part two, then a clear division to part three. And they literally couldn't tell the story without that point of view because it was so crucial to what happened. But also it was jarring. Um, mm -hmm. This person was a really good writer, so they kind of got away with it. But like it took me a hot second to. Yeah go back into the story to, you know, especially because they use second person. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is even more jarring, but like, if you look at um, the broken earth trilogy by NK Jemison, she does this beautifully and she has a second person point of view um, and uses multiple points of view all the way through all of the series. Um, and has a like a brilliant twist as to who one of the points of view is, which I really, really liked at the end of the book. Um, but anyway, yes, loved it. Love, lo love, love playing with points of view. But I do agree that um, don't, don't do me and introduce a second point of view in the last book in a series. There's always a place for it, right? There's always someone who can do it really well, who can master it. But I think, and especially if it's your first series or you're unsure, then, you know, revert to the, the, the general expectations. Um, and, you know, maybe your first series isn't the series to start super experimenting with all really, you know, super or maybe, artistic ways of doing things. I don't or, know. Maybe, or maybe it is because it matters less because it's never going to be the best work yeah. that you ever do. Right. I suppose so, so. Yeah. I guess, I guess there's always going to be another different, series, different, another series, different ways of doing it. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and also pen names. Are you using a different pen name for a different, yeah. you know, style, genre? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's the problem. The problem with these things is that there's no one way. There's no right way. And, you know, whether you're writing a series, whether you're writing a series of standalones, you know, you've got to work out what works best for you, how you best work and, you know, where your particular readers are and are you meeting their expectations? Because your, Sasha, your readers are very different to my readers and so Mm -hmm. they might enjoy different things to my readers. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's hard. (laughs) It is hard. It is hard. I agree. All right. Well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. <laughs> I always dread this question because I'm I'm so boring. <laughs> um, I don't generally, like, I'm not a big rule breaker. I'm sort of like, I said to my partner last night, oh, Sasha's going to ask me this question. <laughs> and like, I was like, when have I been a rebel? Um, and he was just like, I don't know. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I like stay in my office all day by myself. Um, but I suppose one, one time, and it's not necessarily like writing related. Um, when was this? It was 20, 2018. Um, Heart of Mist had come out, Reign of Mist had come out, and I hadn't had a break or a holiday for like two years. Um, I'd literally just been chained to the desk. And um, I don't know when I must've been like out for a walk or something. And I just thought, I really fancy going to New Zealand to ride a horse. And, um, I know it was very random, but so that was very unusual for me, just having this idea. And on the way back from the walk, I went to the travel agent and went, I want to go to New Zealand to ride a horse. And, uh, Hey, this, this guy, we, we organized my trip then and there the next day I came back and paid for it. And then three weeks later, I was on the plane to New Zealand. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And um, so I, that's the first time, like any other time I've done a lot of travel, but any other time it's been this very um, well thought out, well-planned, you know, huge event. And this time I was just like, I got to go, I got to get out of here. So I got on the plane. I had the most incredible trip. It's where I met my fiance. And so I met him and then went on this horse riding trek by myself, which was incredible. It's the first like big solo trip I'd ever done. Um, and I came back to Australia and thought, I'm going to go again. So three weeks later I went back and, uh, then two months after that, I moved here. Oh my God. I love it. Everyone was like, but, but you just went to New Zealand. Like what are you doing? Um, (laughs) And I was like, well, I'm going to move there. And it seemed this really like very out of character, just spur of the moment, like got to go, got to do it. Um, So, yeah, that was, I guess, in a way, rebelling against what everybody thought of very um, routine, structured Helen. Just, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. And all for a little bit of love as well, which I do enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books and anything else that you would like to add. Um, so the best place would probably be, um, helenshora.com and then forward slash four authors. That's where people who are interested in what we've just talked about, um, can get my successful series bundle, which is like a free, um, bundle of goodies all about writing a series. So you get a cheat sheet from my nonfiction book. 
Um, you also get my complete series Bible for Curse of the Siren Queen. And I think that's pretty cool in terms of if you're looking to set up your own um, series Bible, you can see how I've done it. Um, over, over the years, it's like a 65-page document of everything broken down um, as I've been writing that series. Um, and you also get a bunch of other resources. So that's probably the best place. If you're interested in my fiction, that's all on Amazon. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram, a little less so now I'm in the writing cave. But, um, yeah, that's, that's full of sort of behind-the-scenes stuff of processes, struggles, um, where I'm at with writing fiction, all that sort of stuff. So those are, those are probably the best places. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming back and for being on the show. Oh, um, thanks for having me. You are most welcome anytime, anytime, as long as you have a rebellion. Um, <laughs> Uh, and of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's patrons and all of the show's listeners. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Helen Joyra. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'm joined by Tom Fowler, and we're going to be talking all about how to write thrillers. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.